Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Welcome, everyone, to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters, and this is episode 37. At least I think it's going to be episode 37. It gets a little crazy when we're in summer tour mode, and I'm not always sure which guest and episode goes where, when, but I'm trying to get ahead of the curve here because we've got a bunch of shows coming up. My guest today has long been on my list of people I need to connect with here, and it finally happened. One of my all-time favorite banjo players, one of my heroes, Allison Brown, joins me a little later on for an awesome talk that really covered a lot of ground. Her her career, her amazing music, her great new record, her amazing business side of her career. She's so cool. So stick around for that. My sponsor this season, Deering Banjos, great company, great banjos, great sounding instruments, and incredible workmanship on the high-end banjos. And of course, you've heard me talk about the good time banjo. This is your go-to if you're looking to get into banjo or it's not your main instrument, you play a little bit on the side. Really, really cool instrument, sounds great, very affordable, and stays in tune, which you really need that to kind of keep the inspiration factor rolling when you're learning something new. Deering's also got some incredible resources on their website. They've got lesson content. They can help you learn how to play. They've got their great Deering live series that I'm either about to be on or have already been on. Not quite sure. And they've got some excellent new finger picks. They took over the Pro Pick brand, and I love these finger picks that they're making. So if you've got banjo needs out there, make sure you check out Deering. Inside the Musician's Brain is brought to you by Osiris Media. Osiris has been helping me do it since the beginning. They've got some incredible shows out there. If you're a fish fan and it's it's getting to that part of the summer where fish is in full swing, tune into Undermine, tune into the HF pod. Check out my man RJB, cutting it up, all things fish, does an amazing job. And so many great pods on the Osiris Network. Shout out to Inappropriate Happiness. That's Karina Reichman and Isaac Sloan. Love listening to these two. And love, again, so many podcasts on the Osiris Network. So check that out. You should also check out Americana Vibes. That's the infamous String Dusters record label. And we have a lot going down right now. We've got the new Andy Hall solo record. We've got Travis Book and Andy Falco play Jerry Garcia, a, a great live recording from a recent show. We've got Midnight North coming up. We've got a morsel record that I've produced. We're really working hard with our management team to create something cool at Americana Vibes and just to help bring more awesome music into the world. So make sure you check that out. And real quick, big shout out to Fritz and Hillary and Ivory and everyone over there at Americana Vibes doing great work for the Dusters and for all these great bands. Okay, so 
I had a whole intro teed up for this excellent Allison Brown interview that you're about to hear, or at least I had the bones of it. That's kind of how I do it. I got sort of a running list of stuff that I want to explore and talk about, or that I'm reading about, thinking about, and that I want to share, or things that come up in these talks, or different things to set up these great guests. And I was going to talk all about influences and how important they are, and and how like learning from your influence is actually the first step toward originality and how that all works and how it's worked for me. And of course, I was going to do that because Allison has been such a huge influence on me. She actually wrote the liner notes to my solo album that I put out years ago on Sugar Hill called Looking Glass. And she's just a total, total ripper. Love her playing and great person as well. She's done some amazing stuff in the industry. So yeah, I I was going to talk all about that, and I was kind of pulling my thoughts together this morning and leaving in a couple days for some duster shows. Got to get this done, and my phone just started blowing up, and I spent like three hours on the line with our manager, then with our business manager dealing with the business of running a band, which I'm often dealing with, and of course, which I ultimately embrace the running the business part, but the circumstances of touring, the reality of what this endeavor entails and, and kind of how it works, how it how it comes together, how it functions, the different people involved and all of the logistical coordination. Oh my goodness, it's just becoming brutal and in ways unsustainable. And it was it was so omnipresent this morning that I decided I kind of had to change course and talk about this for a minute and pull the wool back a bit and kind of explain what the current climate is like, make some observations about it, this sort of thing. Because I think I think it's important to kind of share this part of the experience and how it works and how it's going. And that, you know, that can help people understand what they're spending their money on and just get that intel out there for fans, for up and coming artists, whatever, like just to get it out there. You know, in a nutshell, bands in our world, in the roots music world, bands that play real instruments and write their own songs and 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 are out there doing it. They really depend on touring, traveling all over, playing for people, selling tickets. They really depend on that to make a living. And oh my goodness, bands in that world are really getting crushed right now for a few for a few different reasons. First and foremost, the cost of travel is absolutely insane. Has gone through the roof. So I'm talking plane tickets, rental cars, everything. In some cases, the prices literally doubled from what it was a few years ago. And that is far away the biggest expense for a band that's out on the road, all the travel costs, moving all these people around, all this stuff. And when you own a business and your biggest expense goes up by say like 10%, that's a lot. And here we are talking about a much bigger increase than that, double. And double in some cases. And the conventions of the industry just have not really changed to accommodate for these massive increases in expenses that bands are dealing with. So the percentage that you pay your manager, your agent, you know, these things haven't changed, haven't come down to accommodate for this. And on top of all that, the music industry is still kind of going through or definitely recovering from this bizarro pandemic that didn't help anyone out, you know, all the various players, bands, venues, promoters, industry people, basically everyone involved just really, you know, really, really went through it. And so still recovering from that, performance fees are slow to go up. So, you know, you got all these different things going on and kind of in recovery mode. And now we're just looking at this this boom in travel expenses. And it goes without saying that the huge shift toward streaming platforms starting, you know, 20-ish years ago, that was a huge adjustment, not necessarily great for artists. But that's what's kind of started this long arcing trend that has bands really focusing on touring as the bedrock of their business because they can't rely on making great money from selling albums. And, you know, this is just the music world that we inherited. And so, yeah, you have to tour to make a living. And Newsflash, we love touring. We love playing music. We love playing live. But 
I'm here to tell you that travel is not that easy these days, and it is not cheap, as I said. And you know, you got a lot of shows on little to no sleep just to just to kind of keep things on the up and up. And then you got like, for example, when a bunch of flights get canceled, you're rolling ten deep to the show, and this happens these days. And you you know, you got a bunch of people, and all of a sudden, you got to rebook everyone on new flights at the very last minute. Super expensive. Hundred percent of those expenses are incurred by the band are incurred by the owner. And so you just see your bottom line going down and it doesn't matter what level you're at. You could be a huge band, you could be a tiny band, it can push you over the edge and make it unsustainable to tour. And it just makes you wonder, should all these costs be getting passed on to the band and no one else? And maybe the partners shouldn't get paid on the gross. Maybe they should be responsible for the health of the business and get paid on the net. And yes, yeah, suggest that to your, your agent and see how they react. Side note, love our booking agent and he works his ass off for us and does an incredible job. But all these things make you wonder about this concept of ownership because you know it used to be that you, know, you took the risk and you got the reward. But first we saw album sales really disappear. Now touring is so much less financially efficient and you just, you just have sort of, it's like a, a microcosm of what's going on in the world. There's just not, there's not really that room for success at, at a middle level. It's this, this 1% and then, you know, everything below it is, is such a big step down. And yeah, we're, we're in this situation where wealth inequality is such a massive issue. And you just got to ask, like, how much is enough? How much do people need? And I guess what might it take to get them to wake up to really valuing the existence of others and to act from that place? So to allocate their resources accordingly to put their money where their mouth is. But for now, Oh, it's such a low frequency thing. Money just rules, you know, versus doing the right thing versus valuing others versus valuing our collective experience, our collective well-being. And I, so many people and the vast majority of those in power are just focused on collecting money and money talks and money makes the world go around. And, and now there's just like this greed trickle down people following the example they see everywhere and charging more not because they're providing more but just because they can and because they see other people doing it we're seeing this with the bus companies that we lease buses from suddenly the price is twice what it was a few years ago and you see all these crazy line items on there just these made up fees and and again yeah they're just following the example that they see out there so so i ask Who's going to set a new example? Who's going to help us kind of shift our concept of value away from money and in the direction of, of empathy and the value of our collective experience, of our collective consciousness? And, oh, it's the time is so ripe for innovation there, not just in the music world, but with the human experience in general. And... I don't know exactly what those innovations look like, but everything I see in our little corner of the music world tells me that they're imminent and, you know, pretty necessary. And of course, the larger the larger music world is changing at light speed right now. We see more and more artists making a living from their bedroom content, TikTok, blah blah blah. I'm talking about the real thing, the real live artists who develop a voice and a performance style over many thousands of hours to create something that's Honestly, it's something that's as close to magic, as close to a miracle as we've got. And yeah, we, we want to bring you the magic. It's just not not getting easier. And I'm not complaining here, but I'm, I am here to call it like it is. And I do want to say how grateful I am to get to do what I do. It is the best. Just not getting any easier right now. But we're not going to stop. And at least we know music will never go out of style. I just hope paying 10 zillion dollars for a minivan in st louis goes out of style anyway all right let's jump ahead that's that's enough and rant thank you for coming to my ted talk here let's jump ahead to my interview here with legendary banjo player allison brown she's one person who is definitely keeping the musical dream alive she's got a killer new album and 
a long career of amazing experiences to share. So let's jump ahead now to my interview with Allison. Here we go. presence of greatness today on Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm so excited to be hanging out with one of my all-time banjo heroes, Allison Brown. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris, and thank you for those kind words, which I really appreciate tremendously. Well, I mean them, and I'm I'm excited to talk about some of the some of the older stuff that really inspired me and inspired I know many other players in my generation, but I wanted to start out at the present and just find out where are you, how are you? It's been way too long since we've caught up. What's going on? Oh, well, always a million things. Um, (laughs) Just have a new record that just came out two weeks ago. So that's kind of a cool thing because it's been a few years since my previous record came out. I think maybe even seven years or maybe more. <laughs> I mean, it's been a while since I've had a record out, so that's kind of fun and exciting. And uh, yeah, just kind of keeping the fires burning at Compass Records and going out and doing some shows and, you know, all that, all the good stuff. Keeping busy as always. No, yes. no, no surprise there. Okay, so let's talk about your new album, On Banjo. This is such a cool record. And of course, the single, um, which is called Foggy Morning Breaking, was everywhere, I don't know, a month or two ago, and great players on this track, Steve Martin, Chris Eldridge, Sierra Hull, and that kind of put it on my radar, but as we were getting ready for this interview, I got to go a little deeper on the whole thing, and this is such an awesome record. So tell us, how long was this one in the works? What was the concept behind it, and how did it all come together? Well, this has been in the works for a little while, and it would have come out sooner if we hadn't had a pandemic happen. (laughs) That (laughs) Um, pesky pandemic. (laughs) I know, right? I think we're still kind of in recovery from it. But um, I I guess the idea was, you know, after the last few records I've done that have had vocal tracks on them, I just really wanted to do an all-instrumental record and focus on tunes that I was writing. And um, I had some specific collaborations in mind that I wanted to to put forward on the record and uh, probably the first one of those was the track that I did with Sharon Isbin who's an amazing classical guitarist I think she's the first classical guitarist to ever win a Grammy and um, I think she's got a couple of them she's amazing and we collaborated at a Grammy pre-tell uh, event some number of years ago and I'd always thought it'd be great to do something together again so when I was working on this record I reached out and asked if she would consider playing with a banjo player again and she said sure so you know when when we couldn't think of a classical piece to do she suggested I write something for her so that was this kind of the start of this idea of writing tunes with other people in mind Tell us really quick about the Steve Martin track, because I think sometimes people sort of misconstrue a little bit, perhaps Steve's place in music as a little bit of a novelty, because obviously he's so mega famous with his acting career, but he's actually such an incredible banjo player. And like, he's really legit with his playing and his style. And it really comes through on the track that you guys recorded. What was that like making music with Steve? Um, Well, it was great. I mean, I've had a chance to tour some with him over the past several years. 
And so I know that he loves to play banjo in double C tuning, and I've yeah. always loved claw hammer and three finger banjo together in that double C tuning. Um, so, you know, in, in some way it was just kind of grew very organically out of getting to do, go out and do some shows with Steve. Yeah. And, um, but what was, you're right, everything you said about his banjo playing is absolutely true. He's, he's a great banjo player and he's a real student of the instrument the way we yes. all are. But he's also a really intuitive writer. And so I wrote the A section to this tune and, and that we recorded together and tossed it to him and asked him if he wanted to write a B section. And he sent, like within a day, sent back what I thought was a perfect kind of response to the A. I mean, it was so musical and so spot on. Um, so, you know, it, yeah, it could be, like you're right, he's so mega famous that it could be, you know, perceived as like this kind of square peg to collaborate with someone like that musically, sure. but it was actually quite the opposite. I mean, he really is a real musician, and so in that way, it's just like collaborating with any other musician. Yeah, yeah, he is such a thoughtful guy, and that comes through in his music. So when you guys put together a track like this with all these great players, how does it go down? Does everyone, did everyone learn that remotely, and then you guys played it for the first time together as a band when you were there for the actual session? Right. Uh, that's a good question. Well, and it was all during pandemic times, so everything was just made that much more strange than usual. But the way we did that one is, yeah, I sent a demo of the tune to everybody, to the to the core band, and we tracked it as a band without Steve. And then gotcha. he came to town maybe a week later, and we recorded the two banjos together. sounds great and it sounds very live and as i said great players on this track and great players on this record and a great it's just got a great sound it really represents to me the eclectic nature of your playing which over the years you know has incorporated all these different elements jazz and of course bluegrass and acoustic music latin sounds celtic sounds and i was curious you know, from early on, do you feel like it's always been a goal of yours with the banjo to do something different with the instrument? No, it was not really intentional. I just, um, you know, came up playing bluegrass music like so many of us did. But then when I finally started really trying to write my own music, I found that it came out as everything but bluegrass. Hmm. So in, in some way, it was, that was kind of organic too. And it was just, you know, kind of just been trying to follow my banjo muse, and it's taken me in a lot of different directions, but it was not really something that I set out to do necessarily. Interesting. I think I've just always liked, you know, I think you're probably like this too. It's like when I started, Earl Scruggs was, of course, you know, the man, but right behind him was Tony Trishka, who was, you know, pushing the envelope for the banjo in the 70s and probably yeah. before, but certainly I became aware of his music in the 70s. And, you know, so I was always really drawn to the players who were rooted in Scruggs style, but kind of looking for fresh and new things to do. Yeah. A great theme that emerges here on conversations, especially with banjo players on Inside the Musician's Brain, the absolute enduring importance of Earl Scruggs' playing <laughs> and how it's amazing, though, it really is how you hear players from across the spectrum, from the most traditional players to the most progressive players like Bela, who will always credit Earl with being the backbone of everything that you do on the instrument, right? Whether it's progressive or traditional, wouldn't you agree with that? That's absolutely true. I mean, I think anytime you put on the three picks that yeah. Earl wore, you know, what you're doing is somehow rooted in his style and growing out of that style. Yeah. Yeah, but it's what a massive legacy. You know, the thing about Earl's playing is, I mean, the, the, like you can say it's it's a classic 
style because people can easily emulate it. I mean, no one can do it as well as Earl did. But, you know, pretty much almost anybody can learn to play a little bit of Earl's style of banjo. And um, I don't know, I, I think that's maybe one of the reasons why it's just so embedded in all of our minds, is it's so accessible as opposed to like some of this more progressive music or even a lot of the things that Bela does require so much musical knowledge and depth to be able to do. You can't just kind of like easily it's sort true. of riff off some of that stuff. No. But Earl's thing, it's like, I kind of feel like anybody listening to this who doesn't play banjo could learn a forward roll and could learn like a little bit of Cripple Creek. Yeah. And so it's it's just a remarkable thing that he created uh, this style that's in a way so simple, but it's like you could spend your life breaking down what Earl did and, and God is really in the details and the way those roles and... Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I love yeah. that description because it's true even though the style is so complex. Because it's, it's almost like you're playing two instruments at one time when you play Scruggs-style banjo. You've <laughs> got the backup stuff and then you've got the melody interwoven there. But really, and this is a credit to how complete and brilliant his concept of banjo playing is, it's really accessible. You can hear what he's doing in there. And you know, compared to a lot of the other bluegrass players, you know, you look at the mandolin and the, the playing styles have just evolved so much, whereas bluegrass players still just want to play it literally note for note like Earl Scruggs. Like, mm -hmm. it, the playing has evolved and all these great players, you included, have pushed this style forward, but so rooted in, in that thing that he created. And wow, that's, that's like, so, you know, as far as the legacy goes, I don't really see how you could how you could top that. So what, what are some of, of your influences? Like, what do you feel like were some of the things that pushed you in these alternate directions, you know, that you ultimately brought into your style? Hmm. Well, I mean, I don't know, but you know, we kind of are what we eat, <laughs> I guess. And, and so I think that really applies to music too. And I grew up in Southern California, you know, playing bluegrass in the mid seventies, late seventies, which was a pretty wide open palette. Um, compared to what it might have been in the southeast if I'd grown up in Tennessee or something. So I was already listening to a lot of other stuff and that hearing that being incorporated into bluegrass, whether it was Eagle Song or a Poco Song or whatever mm -hmm. it was, you know, that was all on the set list. That was all on the menu in California back then. And, you know, my dad was a, a big, you know, an avid fan of Joe Pass. So oh, cool. that was just on in the background. And I still love Joe Pass. He's one of my favorite musicians. I mean, sure. listen to him pretty much any time. Just gorgeous player. And and so, I don't know. I, I think that I think that after a, an amount of time, it's like everything you've been listening to kind of gets combined into some other fresh, different kind of stew in your head. And then at some point, you'd be able to, you're able to kind of create your own tunes that, kind of are a little bit of everything you've ever heard, but hopefully a, a little bit original too. Yeah, well you do it so well and it's hard to condense all of those different influences into one style, but you do that so well and it really comes across on this new record and you've got tunes like Foggy Morning, Breaking that have a, a beautiful more acoustic sound that that uh the great track with stewart uh tall hog at the trough um but then you know you've got stuff like banjo beam you know that have much more of sort of that latin jazz influence and and it's so cool i i have to say so the record of yours that really that really turned us on to your music was fair weather which oh. I took a look before we sat down today. So that one came out in 2000. And that was like right around when I started playing the banjo. And wow. if, <laughs> if you haven't checked out Fairweather, the Allison Brown record, you got to go check it out. It is chock full of, you know, what ultimately kind of became like classics for us, like um, Late on Arrival, you know, Deep Gap with David Greer. I love that song Hummingbird with Claire Lynch. I mean, these these are like these were on in heavy rotation for us back in the day. Oh, that's um, so cool! Thank you for telling me that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I want to jump back to your early career because it's it's not your average career in music. And you know, you got your undergrad degree from Harvard. You got an MBA from UCLA. 
what did you think you were going to do with your life when you were, you know, neck deep in all of this heady education? Clear. I mean, it doesn't seem like you thought you were on track to be a banjo player at that point. <laughs> I most certainly was not. Um, well, I, I went to college with the intention of going to medical school, and when that didn't pan out, um, ultimately decided to go to business school because it was a year shorter than law school. So that's how much I was really thinking <laughs> thinking about it. But <laughs> ban- banjo never really entered the equation as something that would be much more than something I would talk about, like literally at cocktail parties. That's what my parents said. Banjo would be excellent like thing to talk about at cocktail parties when you're a like, fill-in-the-blank doctor, <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> so... Um, but, you know, in fairness, too, it, it was, you know, I, I graduated from college in 84 and business school in 86. And there really weren't that many step out musicians from the acoustic world that had made a good living mm-hmm. playing, like playing banjo. You know, Bela's probably really the first one. Well, Earl Scruggs maybe is the first and there are some. But, you know, if you're an instrumentalist and especially back then, there really wasn't a footprint for how you could make that work. So I fully intended to just be like a banjo hobbyist. <laughs> but as it turned out, you know, I didn't like refunding taxis at bonds um, as much as I felt I should like <laughs> to do it <laughs> in order to spend so much time at it. So I, and I took a little hiatus and then joined Allison Krause in Union Station in an in a extreme career 180 and um, then really never had to look back. That is so cool. I love that story. And I can empathize with that story, Allison, because I too, this is our one, our strange bond. I too have an Ivy League degree that, you know, for at least the first 15 years of my career sat under the bed and my dad was like, what are we <laughs> doing where, here? You know, yeah, that's where mine was too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the irony is, and I think that you of all people can agree with this, that ultimately things come full circle and now, you know, you're a label owner and it seems like a lot of these skills do come into the fold down the line. I mean, being a banjo player, being a professional musician actually is about a lot more than just playing the instrument. Oh, no doubt. And the more complicated this gets, the more important it is to have some kind of business savvy. But yeah, I mean, I used my business degree like from the get go with Compass Records. So yeah. Like in a general sense, I mean, I never had to refund a bond again, but you know, it was good to know how to do it an Excel spreadsheet and a PL and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I never regretted it. And also, I mean, I never had to wonder what I was missing. And that was important for oh, me. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Just kind of knowing, knowing what's out there and then also feeling like, well, you really took that leap of faith and did this thing that you really cared about. And then ultimately, you know, your career moves in this other direction and you become really a trailblazer in music and business as a woman breaking new ground, banjo player of the year in 1991 at IBMA, the first female to win one of the instrumental awards. And then of course, as we said, ultimately be, you, you become a label owner and a business leader in the music world, which is so cool. And I'm curious, when your career was getting going, how aware do you feel like you were of the challenges facing someone like you in that position in the music world? You mean like the, the girl thing? Yeah, that, the girl that challenge? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, it was pretty much in your face all the time because any time I played anywhere, I was pretty much guaranteed somebody would come up to me and say, you sure do pick good for a girl which was a thing people said like every day back, you know, when I was wow. starting. So it was impossible not to be aware of the fact that you were an, an anomaly, I guess. Um, and I've talked to, you know, Missy Raines and other, you know, women of my generation, they all had the same experience. Um, so, you know, it was a challenge, but a challenge is an opportunity too, in a yes. way. Yes. And so because you're like the odd man out or the odd woman out in this case, I mean, you get, you know, your certain opportunities don't come your way, but others do. Yeah. And, you know, and I think my, my feeling was always, you know, just to try to be as good as I could be on the banjo. And then if I were, could be really good, then I would have an opportunity to do what I wanted to with it. Right. Yeah. The proof is in the pudding. How encouraged are you to see what's going on 
right now with acoustic music. I mean, not only with the music in general, but I feel like we have so many amazing female artists representing bluegrass and acoustic Americana, all of that right now. It's like really encouraging to see. Yeah, I love seeing it. I mean, it's been a long time coming. I mean, from the time, you know, I was banjo player of the year to the time Molly Tuttle became guitar player of the year. And there were five women who had won like their respective instruments, like a core bluegrass band's worth of of women. It took 27 years, Wow. (laughs) which is crazy. But but still it it happened. And you're right. And I think that you can't underestimate the value and importance of you know, for young people coming up playing, being able to see somebody that looks like them doing what they want to do. Could and so, not agree more. Yeah, so I think for young girls to see other women playing instruments, it, it validates their ambition. Well, and, and I should say not just playing other instruments, but playing instruments at the highest level. I mean, that is really something I feel like that would would really spur your imagination and say, hey, I can do this too, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, the the First Ladies of Bluegrass, which is an occasional band that, you know, where everybody was like the first female instrumentalist of the year on their instrument, you know, with Molly Tuttle and Sierra Hall and Missy Raines and Becky Buller and myself, you know, when we do play occasionally, there are always so many young girls in the audience and so many of them afterwards say that, you know, it's like, I can imagine myself being like you, Missy, because I had never seen a woman like really get down on the bass and I can see you doing that, so I can imagine myself doing that. And thats it's true for women, it's true for people of color and every sure. kind of diversity that, that exists. And so it's really great, I think, to see, you know, the Americana space and the Roots music space, and especially the, the bluegrass space, becoming more open and inclusive. Because I think the music will only benefit from that. Well, that's it. And I think, you know, we owe you and everyone else who falls into that trailblazer category, a real debt of gratitude for opening up those doors and ultimately, you know, welcoming in and bringing in all of these amazing artists who are now core to the genre and pushing the music forward. And, you know, they've become a real part of that legacy. And and as you say, a, a lot of that starts with, you know, young women seeing someone like you up there on stage and that that is just such a cool thing, um, you know, and, and again, something, something that I think you should be really, really proud of. We'll get right back to my interview with Allison Brown after this very short break. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest, to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and -and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Let's shift gears a little bit. I want to pick your brain just about some music stuff in general because you don't get to you don't get to where you're at on banjo truly one of the best players out there and doing it at that level for many years without putting in lots of work, lots of work on your playing, lots of work on your performance skills. So over the years as you've 
progressed with music, what do you feel like have been some of the most challenging things that you've encountered, whether they're conceptual things, technical things? What, what are some of the areas that you really feel like you've had to put in extra work to kind of put it all together for yourself? Hmm. Well, that's a big question. Um, I, I don't know. Well, I guess I, I would say the one thing that I, that's an ongoing pursuit is just, you know, finding enough fluency on the fingerboard to be able to, you know, improvise over whatever you're talking about, whether it's like a, just a bluegrass tune, just to truly be able to improvise over something and not relying so much on, you know, canned licks or things that you know, or patterns that you know that are go-to, um, to just really have the fluency to reach beyond that. And then, you know, adding on top of that, like trying to get enough harmonic knowledge to be able to go some different places within those changes, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that, you know, that makes a lot of so sense. So like, it's probably the same for you. So like if you've got some tune where you've just got like a big open solo on a D chord, well, you know, we all could like play something on a D, but what are those other places that you can go? You know, like, then that's where sure. you like tap, tapping into, you know, like, just jazz harmony and theory and all that kind of stuff. And like, I'm a, I'm a perpetual student of jazz guitar. It starts with my love of Joe Pass, but like always looking at those videos and trying to get some of those ideas for modes and scales and talking to our keyboard player a lot too about different approaches. Like if you're having to play over like a G sharp to an A minor, like we have one tune that just has this jam where it's like four bars of G sharp and four bars of A minor just back and forth. Like, how do you think about that beyond just being G sharp and A minor? So those kinds of things. Just for an example like that, like how do you work on something like that? Do you slow it down and break the phrases up into sort of their own thing and then start to kind of build lines or are you more transcribing? Like what what's an actual look at how you would, you know, work on something like that? Well, both. So I'm super lucky to get to play with, like, you know, a great piano player who, like, night after night will play great solos. So that's a huge resource. And a lot of times I will listen to, to that and try to transcribe some of those lines. Okay. And then also it's like, you know, G banjo, like a G scale is always under our fingers, but G sharp. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a fret up, but it's like another universe away. So just like being comfortable like finding all those G sharp positions and playing the G sharp scale up and down the neck so that you can then like play, you know, the Dorian mode of the G sharp scale and know where that is and then how to relate it to a C scale or wherever you might be going on to, to the A minor, you know? Sure, sure. So that's kind of that fingerboard fluency and man, it's, it's a life's pursuit, I'm sure. I think step one is realizing that there is a place to to try to go, you know, like, and I think that listening to keyboard players is a great way to, to get outside of the box that you might be in as a banjo player yeah. where you're just like looking at these two shapes and trying to wonder, you know, like what to do. Now, what uh, about, what about, and this is a little bit more banjo centric, but what about the technical side of things, especially as it relates to the right hand? Because that's something that I notice to me, that's kind of like a hallmark of your playing is how fluid it is and how there is a wide range of vocabulary, whether it's Scruggs style stuff or, you know, more single string things, and they all flow together in a really musical way. And that's hard to do. So what about with your right hand? What are maybe some obstacles that you feel like you've had to overcome or some exercises or ways that you found to really make your right hand more fluid? Hmm. Another really thought-provoking question, Chris. Um, I don't know about that so much. I mean, the metro, like practicing with a metronome. I think coming out of bluegrass, especially after you know spending three years in Alison Krauss's band, where the time was like so metronomic. Sure. That's something like I always, I'm always trying to work on, and I always feel like I'm falling short. You know, so practicing with a metronome is really important. Um, whether it's something that you're learning or it's something that you already know. And look, the worst thing you can do is practice something you already know over and over without a metronome because then you're just reinforcing any, you know, kind of bad habits or sloppy 
timing things that you might not even know that you're doing. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, you know, like I, I've watched Jens Kruger a bunch. He's uh, obviously just one of the great banjo players. And this idea of like reaching your index finger down onto the first string and incorporating that into a roll pattern. That's a that's a cool thing. I don't know if you've experimented with that. I think that's the tune Old Shatterhand on the new record. Sure. I think that was how I got that melody across. Wait, so tell me more specifically. So you're you you said you're using your 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 index finger or or what how does that work? Like reaching your index finger down to the first string. So usually oh, I, now okay. I don't know if I'll be able to do it with like out of banjo in my hand, but do you know what I mean? Usually sure. your index yes. finger is like Inside. Inside, exactly. Yes. It's inside. <laughs> so for it to go outside is outside, right? So, <laughs> but it can do it. And then it kind of creates some other role possibilities, which I've found really kind of fun to experiment. And yeah. you've probably, have you messed with that? Yeah, I I have. And, you know, to be totally honest, some of these questions, you know, it's rare that I have a banjo hero on the podcast. So this is like part inside the musician's brand interview, part selfish. Let me see what kind of <laughs> ideas I can glean from Allison Brown here. But I, I just know that, you know, for me, the right hand and really, like you mentioned a guy like Jens Kruger and getting to that freedom with your right hand is is really a challenge. And Ron, who I'm going to have Ron Block on the podcast one of these days, is a friend and a mentor and someone who I've talked to a lot about these things and learned a mm -hmm. lot from just in the realm of trying to kind of undo tension and find that fluidity with the right hand. And for me, one thing that can be really helpful is simply doing things that you don't normally do. And of course, that's, mm -hmm. that's a concept that can be extrapolated out probably to all of the things in your life. You know, it's when we do the things we're familiar with that we're not necessarily advancing. But but yeah, it's basically like getting out of the box that you're normally in mm -hmm. and trying some right-hand positions that aren't totally familiar. Um, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, metronome and then like, do you ever feel like you have to focus? Do, do you ever feel like that's something that you work on with your right hand is just being relaxed and fluid and being intentional about that? Um, I think being relaxed is really important. You're a one finger guy too, aren't you? You or know, do you do I, two? I, I've, I've done both and I've been doing two for the last recent little while. And I just kind of, and, and really the answer is I do whatever I feel like allows me to be most relaxed. And for a long time I did one because the ring finger and the middle finger are sort of anatomically correct connected. But right. then, but then I found started to find just more stability with two. So I'm kind of all over the map, but you're one, right? Yeah. Because I could never, like, I could never move this finger with this finger down. Right. So I guess that's what you're saying. These yeah. fin two fingers being connected. Yeah, they are for me. So that kind of became the one finger thing. So I've always felt like, I mean, I know Tom Adams did that and he was one of the great right hand guys on the banjo. So that kind of validated it. But I always think about, you know, like just trying to have the most solid right hand that I can. So wait, Tom Adams only anchored one finger? Yes, and that always made me feel so good knowing that. <laughs> you just blew my mind because I feel like, for one thing, I feel like I should have known that because Tom Adams is like on my Mount Rushmore of banjo too. But I, when I hear him play, and if you haven't checked out Tom Adams, banjo player for the Johnson Mountain Boys, he's on a Blue Highway record. He's got some incredible other stuff out there, some solo records. His right hand is so bonkers. Like, it's like this power Scrug style, you know, like J.D. Crow, but even to me more sort of on the button, like metronomic even and powerful. And, but he hasn't played for years. He has a rare neurological disorder called focal dystonia. So I never got to see him play. Oh. But I, I guess I always just assumed he was a two fingers down, but I guess he's not. Gosh, you know, and it's been so long, but I'm almost 100% sure. Okay. Please yeah. tell me if, I, if I'm wrong. But no, I'm I, almost 100% sure that he was a one finger guy. So that's it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Tom Adams is another banjo hero. You got to you got to check him out. So what about what about performing and the performance mindset and 
how to really get in the zone on stage. What are some, what are some things that you feel like you focused on in that area over the course of your career? That is another good question. I'm not sure I have a great answer for that one. You know, we don't get to play out as much as I wish we did. Um, but I think that one of the things, you know, it's like always like going up against your nerve. That's the big trick, yes. right? Like being comfortable enough to take some chances versus just staying safe and doing the safe thing. And I think for me, after so many years of playing, I feel like I've made like every mistake you could make <laughs> on stage. <laughs> and I think once you've done that, you feel like a little bit more freedom uh, to take chances, you know? as opposed to when you didn't know what would happen. <laughs> so wh what do you what do you do to prepare for a show? Like in the 45 minutes or hour before you go on stage, what does your warm-up routine and everything look like? Oh, I'm just lucky if I can grab the banjo for 15 minutes and just try to remember, um, just make sure I can remember all the heads and stuff like that. I mean, you probably have a, do you, do you have like a strict kind of routine? Well, not super strict other than I really try to give myself time, I would say, in the ballpark of like a half an hour to play and sort of warm up slowly and then, you know, play some ideally some really fast stuff, even if it's a little clunky coming out, because you've got to kind of blast those mm -hmm. cobwebs out, you know, if, if you're going to find that fluidity. But But that's always been something that, you know, versus like, the harmonic information and writing, which are things, and, and kind of having your own voice, those are things that have come a little bit more naturally to me, whereas I feel like I've had to focus a lot over the years on right-hand technique and sort of gone through periods where I feel really on my game and then gone through periods where, you know, I feel a little bit more inconsistent. And that's just the nature of growth and, you know, learning an instrument. But, but it is something that I, you know, that I, that I think about just to kind of get in the zone for a performance. Now we play like a hundred shows a year. So this is like a, a very regular thing. What about you? How much, how many times will you perform this year? You know, it really fluctuates. Maybe we might do 25, 30 shows. So it's, it's many fewer and we have less infrastructure than you guys. We have like less of a team on the road. So before a show there's, you know, more things to do that aren't necessarily about getting warmed up on the banjo. Gotcha. So there's that, there's that challenge. And the other thing too, that's different with our band, which is something that I miss, you know, is that since everybody else is playing, except for our flute player is playing an instrument that's on stage, they don't do anything to, I mean, they don't warm up. They just eat dinner yeah, and then they go mind. sit down. Right. <laughs> so there's, so there's not like that, like kind of jam or people like sitting in the dressing room that you could just play a few, a little bit of something with. That blows my mind. That blows my I know. mind. I'm, I'm like, if, if I'm going to go on stage, I have to have the instrument in my hands and sort oh, of. Oh, me too. I absolutely have to have it. At least if nothing else to try to get the darn thing to be in tune, you know, yeah. and a little bit warmed up. But yeah, yeah, they don't. They just sit down and start playing. And it's it's not just them. It's just um, our music is the way we're describing it. But for jazz guys, I guess that's the way it is. You know, they'll just sit down at their instruments after they eat dinner and start the show. And there isn't that jam in the dressing room to warm up, which I really miss. I, that's something that I love when I get to play in an all-acoustic band, just that everyone's got their instruments out and you can kind of like get in the same headspace together. And I think that that's something that's really important. It probably as important as anything else is that people hit the stage like of one mind rather than five minds. Yes, yeah. I remember interviewing a great piano player here on Inside the Musician's Brain. And this was, I think in season one, her name is Holly Bowling and <laughs> phenomenal piano player and she performs a lot solo and I was picking her brain about this exact thing and it was interesting to hear her talking about the idea that she doesn't have the instrument in her hands when she goes out on stage. But what eventually came through in our conversation was that this is just what she's accustomed to. Mm -hmm. And her body, when she sits down at the piano, it reacts in the way that she's trained it to react. And we all do that same thing. And I think it's just 
a lot of this is a function of what we're accustomed to. But I know I've, I've been, I want to say inspired, but it really, the word is amazed by musicians who just go out on stage and like the guitar is sitting on the stand. And I, I, I can't believe that. <laughs> right. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you start, if you had to start a show with your banjo sitting on a stand, it'd be like, man, the first five minutes would be tuning for sure <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, that's great. All right. Let, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about Compass because this has been a really cool and interesting part of your career. And we, the String Dusters, did record on Compass and had a great experience. And now you guys have a great reputation out there. And I think it's just so cool that, you know, this has been part of your career. And so as, you know, as a label owner, I was curious to just pick your brain a little about kind of your impressions of where the music industry is at and where it's headed. Yeah, I think it's um, the industry's become really, really challenging. Um, you know, the, the transition, like in 2004, when Steve Jobs decided that an album was worth $9.99 and a download was worth a dollar or 70 cents for the label, that was like, seemed like such a cataclysmic moment. But streaming has just totally squashed margins so mm. much that, I mean, I really, like in terms of bluegrass music, I really wonder how sustainable it will be for bands. You know, I mean, I just think that the economics of the record business, especially for like core bluegrass bands, has become more challenging as a result of the shift to digital, just because our audience isn't as much on streaming. And when they are on streaming, they don't stream as much. So speaking of not like a band like the Dusters that, you know, is kind of more on the fringe of the bluegrass space, but a core bluegrass band, I think it's really challenging. So you're saying that it, like essentially they're going to have a hard time justifying making recordings or making money from recordings breaking even so like understanding what you know where that fits in in their career i i would say so and i think you know right now because of the inequities in um broadcast royalty law and the copyright law in the united mm -hmm. states but basically the fact that am fm radio doesn't pay a broadcast royalty to master owners um but it, you do get a broadcast royalty for non-terrestrial or satellite radio. So Bluegrass Junction Airplay on Sirius XM is one of the big things that's propping up the bluegrass industry from a music business point of view. Yeah. And as long as that revenue's flowing, things are good. But if things were to change, I think it would be even more challenging because bluegrass music is, and speaking especially of the core artists in the genre, it's never been a big retail uh, kind, of, kind of genre. It was much better, though, when there were, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago, there were probably 95 accounts that were really strong for bluegrass hmm. and roots music. And and one of those accounts would have been Tower, and one would have been Borders Books and Music, and one hmm. would have been Barnes & Noble. So 95 accounts, but, you know, a thousand stores. And yeah. now the account spread is so much smaller. And, you know, retailers have to be just that much more judicious with their available to spend dollars. So it's just harder to sell the physical product through retail and the streaming side of things is there and it's an opportunity. But at the same time, the streaming, you know, playlists on Spotify tend to have a lot fewer listeners and, you know, just the demographic in general isn't so much on the streaming services. Right. So it's just really compressed, like speaking of bluegrass music, especially, it's made it a lot more challenging. Fortunately, I mean, Compass does a lot of different kinds of music. And yeah. so, you know, we'll see like a lot more streaming and all that stuff, you know, like with a Americana artist or an artist like Colin Hay or Glenn Phillips, you know, their demographic is very much different than the demographic from Michael Cleveland or Special Consensus, you know, talking about bluegrass. Right, right. Because streaming, the payment that you get from streaming is not a substitute for payment for album sales, right? No, it takes about 1,500 streams to equal the revenue of one album sale in the old model. Wow. And so would you say that the, the going mentality is still something like this? Spotify, you have to be on Spotify 
because it gives you so much access to a bigger listener base, but then that access is something that you need to go monetize. You need to go turn that into dollars via touring and merchandise. Yeah, I mean, I think the name of the game has probably always been live for the artist. You know, even 15 years ago, sure. people would put out records and they might recoup and they might make money from those records, but the records and the profile that you got from having the support of a label and the records out there in the market, that got you more gigs, which created more opportunities for live. And that's mm. really where the dollars have been. And I think that that's probably ever more the case now. You know, it's certainly, I think it's probably just made live even that much more important. So where do you see all of this going? <laughs> I don't know, really. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I hope that some of the things that are, I think are kind of unfair, um, speaking about broadcast royalties, that's just something that's a loophole in, in U.S. law. And there's only three other countries in the world that don't pay the master owners of a recording a broadcast royalty on terrestrial radio, and those being like China, North Korea, and Iran. So every other country in the world does pay both sides of the copyright owner for radio airplay. That's and I tough, think that's tough company to be in right there. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's ridiculous. And, you know, the non-terrestrial, you know, the success of Sirius XM and the fact that they do pay both sides of the copyright um, proves that it can work. So it's just, that's something that needs to be fixed. And I think that, you know, I think that hopefully the American Music Fairness Act will make it through and get passed and... Yeah, so why, why is it that way? It is that way just because it's a, it was a loophole from way back in the you know, 40s or 50s. And Frank Sinatra, when he started Reprise Records, was one of the first artists' labels to really kind of lobby against this. But the radio broadcasters' lobby is really strong. And the, the issue hmm. is very nuanced. Like, I hope that people listening have any idea what I'm talking about. But I know from trying to explain the issue to legislators... Um, you know, it's people's eyes glaze over really fast because it's like starts with, wait, a song has two owners, what? You know, it's just, hmm. it's very nuanced. And so I think the fact that it's nuanced and the fact that the radio uh, lobby is so strong is what has kept this thing an issue, but it, it keeps coming up. And it was in the American Music Fairness Act was in the last omnibus spending bill at the end of last year. Didn't make it through, but... I mean, I think it's something that's going to have to be addressed. So I, I hope that one of the things that happens in the future is that inequities like that, you know, can be addressed so that things become a little bit more fair and there's a little bit more margin. So you mentioned speaking to legislators. Is this something that you've done, been out there on behalf of artists trying to trying to fix this situation? Yeah, I've spoken on behalf of the Recording Academy and we've had, you know, people come by the studio at Compass, you know, staffers for, for different you know, congressmen or senators who are trying to, you know, grapple with the issue. And occasionally we'll get to speak to a congressperson or, you know, try to explain this to them. Yeah. And I'm sure it's the kind of thing, like when you're hearing about so many things in a day, you need to hear it multiple times to right. start to wrap your arms around it. Right. So is there anything that you feel like artists can do to lobby on their own behalf and try to rectify all this? Mm, that's a good question. Well, I think... You know, I think when the going gets tough, um, it's common for people to like retrench and not be joiners. But I think in this case, it's important to support the organizations that support us. And if that means, you know, joining the Recording Academy, if you're eligible, um, they do amazing things in advocacy. Um, Sound Exchange is pretty active. Um, IBMA is has a seat at the table too. Yeah. So I think when you think about, you know, whether or not you should be a joiner for some of these organizations, you have to consider what work they're doing on your behalf as a creator. Yeah, that, that's great advice and a great place to wrap up this great conversation. And uh, can't tell you how, how glad I am to reconnect with you, Allison. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Everyone go check out Allison's new record on banjo. It's fantastic. And Thank you again, and I hope we get to cross paths soon. I hope so, because we need to sit down and play some banjo. I would love that. I would love that, too. <laughs> Thanks, Allison. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. 
Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. So great to hang out today with the incomparable Allison Brown. Thank you, Allison. Thank you for joining me. It was such a blast to catch up. Make sure you check out her amazing new record on banjo. ITMB is brought to you by Deering Banjos, your go-to for all your banjo needs. We are also brought to you by Osiris Media and Americana Vibes. And you're going to want to make sure that you stay tuned for the next episode. Big guest here on the podcast from a little-known rock band that starts with a PH and rhymes with wish, as in who do you wish you could hang out and nerd out about music with for over an hour. This this is a good one, guys. You're going to want to hear it. So we'll have all that and more right here in two weeks when we go back inside the musician's brain. Osiris. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.